Welcome to Lo-Fi Lit, everyone. This is Tyler Byrne coming in with a new series of readers. I recorded this last week. It went very well. Had a great time. Now, not a lot of people showed up, so I recorded it. And one of the things I like to do is I don't do um, introductions for people. And so what this does is this sort of stimulates the other readers to then start conversations. Well, that's the thought. And so I try to get people to start talking to each other. And it was a really, it was just a great time. And I really enjoyed this. On this episode, you are going to hear the selected delectable selection of readers like August Smith. You're going to hear James Brubaker read a piece from his new um, book, his new novel, We Are Ghost Lit, which he wrote and was inspired by the death of his one of his uh, friends a while back. And it's it sounds like a fun novel, but it also uh, dips into feelings, uh, mourning and grief, in a in a fun and experimental way. And I think the other the other episode I'm going to put out also sort of uh, deals with that with Mark's piece in a way that. I don't really want to explain, and you're going to have to experience. Um, because last year, a friend, Eris Aldrich, passed away. And Eris Aldrich is the last story she read in this ongoing um, series of by this magazine called Misery Tourism. They do live readings every Friday um, called Misery Loves Company. And... It was like the last, the last story she had read was Mark's story. Cause Mark didn't want to read, like Mark came in and he didn't want to read for some reason, but he brought in these two pieces and I guess she didn't have, she, she was there and she loves, she loved to read. And you can tell that in the reading and like the way that she just like interacted with people. She was like, I feel like misery tourism is like, or misery loves company was just like, a reading full of Oppenheimers and she was the Barbie that had like an Oppenheimer like in her, but she brought the Barbie out in this, in these readings full of these dark twisted souls who binge on destruction. And she brought the Barbie out, the beautiful stereotypical Barbie out in these Oppenheimers, as I said. It's a very, that's a very strange way to market two movies that just came out. But yeah, so it was like the last thing she had read. And I brought on Mark and Mark did not know that I was going to do this. And I didn't explain it to anyone because it's so fucking deranged. It's such a deranged thing to do. But I've done it and I don't think anyone's going to listen to it because no one knows that I did it. And I'm not going to tell anyone except on this episode. And it was like, I guess for James, like I didn't know, I knew James had written the book, but I didn't really 
realize till later that this was going on in this reading and no one even knew that this was a thing that happened that I brought on Mark to read this specific story. And not only did I bring on Mark to read that specific story for that reason, there's other reasons. It's a good story that Mark written because Mark writes very trans, like quote unquote, transgressive writing. He's very out there. His writing is very charismatic. And this was like, it was just weird because this was like the first piece that he he had that was just like, it was about him. And it was like a personal story about when he was younger. And it was about fitting in. And it just had this nostalgic feel about it. And it was about New York and baseball. And it was kind of like this macho story. And to hear like Eris read it. And she was like so excited to read it. And she didn't know what she was reading as she, until she was reading it. And I'm sort of like going off track here. Anyways, the point is I'm deranged. So, and Mark hadn't, he, Mark hasn't been like at a misery tourism or misery loves company in a while. And also the fact that like, I've never talked about misery loves company because it's not something that I like to talk about. It's, it's a secret thing I like to have to myself. And I don't like to talk or tell too many people about it. Because all those people are, you know, just the derelict dingleberries of society. And I'm a, among them, I guess. So what I'm saying is don't seek it out and don't go there or uh, I will hurt you. And you will see a different Tyler. Uh, I like to think of it, you know, like John Wayne Gacy, where John Wayne Gacy was like this great like advocate and this like nice guy, and he was like in politics, and everyone loved him, and he supported everyone. But then, like, of course, he had this secret. You know, he's the clown of everyone knew him as a clown, but his secret was like really fucking. Was the known we all know him for because he killed kids. He's like a sociopath. And I kind of feel like when I go to like this misery loves company readings, I get to be like, I get to let my sociopath out. But I don't want people to know that I have that side of me. So I wasn't intending to talk about misery loves company this long. Anyways, so James is that. Then you're going to hear Spencer Williams, who is a bit of a new... No, I'm not saying new. She was born in Buffalo. She, she was not born in Buffalo. She's from California. I'm just all fucked up. I don't want to do this anymore. Okay. I've recorded so many of these fucking intros, and I just want to get one right. Just want to get one right. I'm just going to put this up. Okay, let me start this over. I'm not going to start this over. Let's just keep going. This is Lo-Fi Lit. I'm Tyler Byrne. I interview writers and I host readings. This is the first reading that I've recorded. The first reading I've recorded, it went 
as well as it could go. There was nothing wrong with my internet. My internet was fine. So I'm not going to bring that up. Let's get to August Smith. August Smith was awesome. He's part of a community that like in 2017, in my years after I dropped out from college. So let's say, let me go back. I was in college at OSU, Oklahoma State. James Baker and Phil Essis were like two writers. I really, I really liked and I read their work. James Baker, um, who I talked about earlier, uh, from his, he's going to read the, from Ghost, VR Ghost Lit. So he would write these really cool short pieces called like Flavor Flav Travels Through Time to Read About Himself on Wikipedia, which is a favorite piece of mine that he has done. And it was just like, so groundbreaking to me that like you could write something like that like you could actually like write something fun and creative that has depth and he also wrote pieces about like time travel but he used them in ways that like had depth like there's this one about like these two college kids that are kind of dicks and they use like a transporter machine and it's really wacky, and I'm doing a terrible job at describing his fiction. But what else? Yeah, he was, uh, I guess, an influence. And I really, I don't want to like, go to his office and like, talk to him and shit and annoy him. And then I dropped out and kind of lost contact. But then when he came back on and we we're hanging out in the reading, it was just like, yeah, it's been 10 years, but, like, why even bring that up? It's just, you're talking again, like, 10 years ago, as people do. Um, What else about him? So, yeah, I dropped out, and then I tried to find, like, my own little... After I dropped out, that was, like, very alone, because I feel like college, you create these little communities, and then after you drop out, I did not have those people or those communities and I was not connected to them anymore. And I didn't know what I was doing. And I just was at home and then I had this job at night crew. And then I just started finding new communities of poets and things like that. And August Smith was part of, I mean, this is the first time that I've like read his work, but like his friends, like uh, he's part of like too fast, too house. He's part of boost house. He's part of like Tenderness Lit. And those are the places that like Spikage Review. Like I remember wanting to get into that. And I remember reading that magazine and like those communities of people. Like Evil Mountain. Oh my God. And they just like, they represented a sort of poetry that was just fun and entertaining in a new way that I hadn't known that you could do. And a lot of the past 10 years has just been me like, Finding people that enjoy doing what they do and doing it in new and fun experimental ways, but also ways that like have depth. And you can do anything you want to, but you don't know what you are capable of doing or like even allowed to do until you read it and realize that you can do whatever you want. You need to like Chelsea Menace bad bad fucking blew my mind I mean she's not really part of this but like you know I didn't until I had read that book you, I didn't know you could do something like that and of course it's like yeah you can do whatever you want 
but like I needed that you need that represented back to yourself so it's important to keep reading and finding new people and I hope with this I guess if you have a favorite writer like August Smith if you're here to read if you're here to listen to August Smith I'm just saying listen to one other person because what are these like two to five minutes just like check them out fast forward listen to the work if you like it you like it if you don't you don't because I know these are boring I know like reading is no one's like excited to hear a reading but like and also for me it's hard to listen to like audible audible books I need like stupid like entertaining things just to get just as a distraction something deep and slow it's hard to consume especially if i'm like you know fucking cleaning my house or something so yeah this terrible intro this terrible fucking intro is the one that's gonna go up i've because i've done so many of these and you guys don't understand when i record these through google meets it takes a while for it to save like 30 minutes and then it sends it to my gmail account and then i download it to my computer which is like very instant and it downloads it as an mp4 and then i can gotta convert that into an mp3 i gotta convert and save that into an mp3 through this program called vlc and then i gotta upload that to clipchamp that i i don't know why i use that um, it's like a video editing software. And then I got to go in, I got to edit, I got to put in the music, and then I got to download that. I got to put in, make sure everything, take out little pieces of audio that don't sound right and try to make it sound right. I don't know how to detail what that means, but I do all this and then save that. And then it takes like 40 or 30 minutes to then download that sometimes it can take two hours download that then i go to go back and re-listen to that and then i gotta save that to my computer and it saves it as an mp4 and then i gotta convert that into an mp3 and then i listen to that and i gotta you know did i get everything right did i cut and edit everything right if i did i can upload it if i didn't Where are we at with the MP3? I gotta go back to Clipchamp. I gotta go put the audio back in and then start editing it again. And if I take out a little clip, take out like a little 0.5, 0.7 millisecond of a clip, because maybe the audio doubled down or the music didn't come out right or it's too loud or too soft or it didn't fade out right or fade back in. I didn't say someone was from somewhere. I didn't get something right. Then I got to download that again for another 40 to 30 minutes. And then that saves to my computer as an MP4. And then I got to convert. And then that saves to my computer. And then I go into VLC and I convert. I save that as an MP3. And then download that converts it. it takes like 30 seconds or 45 seconds. And I get that. And I got to listen to that, see if there's anything wrong, if there's something wrong, or I want to go back and fix something, or I got to do a new intro like I've done for this several times, which I've done a couple other intros. 
and then I got to say that and then I do this process again and again and again and it gets very exhausting and it's not like something I can just go in and like edit it edit something real quick and then just like oh put it up on the internet it's a very grueling uh, process you're gonna hear August Smith read his poetry about UFOs very exciting very fun some quality quality content Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever gone to a reading where it's like no one showed up like this? Yes. Yeah. You have? I've been to a couple readings where it's just the readers, like in person, <laughs> which is like kind of fun and everyone just kind of shrugs and, um, you know, whatever. <laughs> Sorry. One of, one of the schools I teach at has one of these, like, some some wife of a military contractor donated a bunch of money to do readings and they pay like someone like five grand in one year some poet came and like no one showed i i, I didn't go i just heard this. <laughs> that's brutal but they got paid five grand so yeah yeah it's, yeah it's all good. They're not, it's no big deal yeah uh, yeah i worked at a bookstore in here in austin called book people and um Type of bookstore that hosts a lot of events. It's a great bookstore, but every so often you'd have a book event where nobody would show up, and mm. uh, whatever. That's just the nature of the thing, I guess. Oh yeah. Is book people the bookstore with like? It's hard. It's like in the. It's like the the entrance is like in the back and like on the along the street. There's like no. It's just like a brick wall. Mm. It's kind of confused. It's kind of like. I can see the way you're talking about it. Um, it seems like that. Yeah, it's got kind of a confusing entrance. Like, if you don't know what you're looking for, you might be like, I don't know how to get into this building. And it's like but, across from, like, the museum in Austin? No, Book People is downtown. Um, it's, like, right by the flagship Whole Foods. It's, like, this two-story bookstore. It's, like, yeah. one of the biggest, like, independent bookstores, I think, in the country. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it sounds true and yeah i don't know it's a good place it's a cool cool place to work yeah i um, went there i bought some books from there once. yeah there was a really good poetry bookstore here in austin that just closed a few months ago called malvern and i sorely missed that um did you get paid well no you get bad <laughs> people get paid like shit. but yeah. uh they unionized right after i left and i think they're still years later they're still in negotiations for their contract or it's some you know sometimes that can take a super long time so theoretically people will be getting better paid there but not when i was there would you ever run a bookstore i don't know everyone i feel like dreams of doing like a bookstore cafe combo like that sounds beautiful to do but i think it's probably pretty hard to run a bookstore i have yeah. a friend who runs a bookstore record shop and she seems like she's like barely keeping afloat at all times and she works really fucking hard way harder than i would so i don't think i could ever run a bookstore what about you would you own a bookstore no. open question it sounds like hell and like the industry is going away to let technology what about you james 
but I own a bookstore. Yeah, like a yeah. like a record bookstore. Man, I I feel like I would really love it for like a year, but again, I think with the uh, the industry being what it is, uh, not a great time to get into it. <laughs> um, <laughs> what about you, Mark? Um, yeah, I, I love bookstores. An interesting phenomena in in this city is that instead of bookstores, they have these uh, uh, sort of these pop-up cannabis dispensaries, and they give preference to veterans. So some so somebody wants me to to go in on with one of them and they're doing readings there and and oh, uh yeah wow and, and uh you know people are popping edibles and <laughs> it's a pretty uh it was uh was sort of an anti-bookstore vibe but they you know they had a they had a large they had a large turnout and it was a lot of fun and i i thought it was just a few blocks away from where i live but then uh friends told me that it's something that's going on all over the city is anybody else in the city here uh, where are people from? I know August. You're from uh, Austin. Tyler, you from Austin too? It sounds like you. I'm from Tulsa. I live in Tulsa. Oh, you live in Tulsa? Yeah. So I do internet stuff. I think Spencer. She lives in Buffalo. Yeah, Buffalo. I'm in Connecticut. I'm about two hours from the city. What? Where? Where? Connecticut? Uh, Hamden, just just north of New Haven. Oh, Hamden. Okay. Yeah. How's Connecticut? It's all right. It's way different than uh, I thought. It's interesting. It's all right. Uh, you get this where where I'm at. It's like a confluence of Boston and New York. Mm -hmm. So my my son has, I don't know how he got it. He has like half his accent. He has an accent. Half of it's like Boston. Dropping the R's, okay. And then half the time he sounds like he's from Long Island. So. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's all right. I've, I've been all over the state. Like I've taught. Um, um yeah, it's it's very like Western Connecticut towards the city is way different than. Yeah, I I lived for a while in Litchfield County. In oh wow! A place in a place called Washington Depot. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I I. Uh, I loved it. There was yeah. uh, it was a big arts community up there because uh, you heard that group. Uh, uh, what is it? Pilibus, 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 the dance. People who did uh, Blue Man Tube, they they have a, a beautiful, really modern house there in this rolling farm farm areas, and so they drew all these really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, artists up there. So I, I, my, my year in Connecticut, I loved. I thought it was great. Yeah, Litch, Litchfield, that whole county is really wild because it's like, uh, you find find out all these like old Hollywood guys live up there or died. Yeah. Like Gene Wilder died. Wow. Yeah, like a, a guy, a guy I loved, an old actor, died up there too. Basil Rathbone. Oh yeah, you probably, yeah most yeah. people don't know who he is, but anyway, yeah, it's it's. And all these old William Styron and uh, yeah, Miller was a big, uh, yeah, big literary. There's this crazy house called Gillette Castle, it's like a museum, but it's this guy named Gillette who was famous. It's this like hyper, it's very 20s 
Art Deco thing. You find I found out like like why is it called Gillette Castle? It's named after some guy who played Sherlock Holmes in plays in the ninth early twentieth century. He got real rich and built this castle. He's the guy who invented like the hat and the the magnifying glass that everybody. Had. It's like the weirdest okay. state. That was a part of the book. Is that nineteenth century? In the nineteenth, <laughs> like late. Century? He was like early twentieth century. So they did these plays and. He was the one who came up with wearing the hat and the oh. magnifying glass. It's like I guess it's not in the novel. I love. I, I don't know if Tyler appreciates, but I, I love Hartford. Hartford feels like it's invincible. It's like Tulsa, but they dropped into the, oh. New England. It's a real weird place. That's uh, cool. All right, I think we'll get back to the reading now. Yeah, yeah. But thank you, Phil. Yeah, and everyone. I do like the idea of a cannabis like bookstore. I think it'd be cool. <laughs> Okay, I feel like so, I'd get too high and then I would like not be able to do a read. If I was doing a reading there, I would get too high. I'd be nervous. Yeah. Hey, just stay bad. away from the hybrids and the sativa. Just <laughs> do the indica and you'll be fine. It'll I would just, just like get fucked up. The head, just calm you down. Just <laughs> nice body flow. That's smart. That's smart. Yeah. But don't do drugs. I'm not Paranoid. <laughs> I, will not, I, I forgot this is recorded right <laughs> yeah my goddamn thing keeps freezing thank god all right drugs are fine now everyone knows oh, drugs are fine, fine. <laughs> y'all do meth okay augie you can be am i reading everybody yeah, nobody has any dental work here it looks like they do meth right so that's <laughs> that's, that's fake news <laughs> okay uh, i'm just gonna read a few poems here um i've been writing these um poems about UFO encounters for the past <laughs> couple of years. I've been um, just reading and just like going insane, reading about people's UFO shit. And then I talking to people about UFO stuff and it's just like, okay, I've just become that guy, but that's fine. I think you, I think poems are kind of a cool way to express some of this weird paranormal stuff anyway. So I'm going to read this first poem is a, uh, from a UFO encounter that was seen in 1554 in France, which is a long time ago. Uh, and it was seen by Nostradamus. And what happened was this like entire group of people in this city in France saw this craft fly overhead. And Nostradamus is like, I got to write a letter to the Duke and tell him about this. So I found this letter and it kind of turned it into a very rhyming poem. Uh, it's called um, Swinging Half Rainbow Over Immensum Fregorum. And this happened again in France in 1554. To the illustrious, high-born, and almighty Lord Claude, Duke of Tenda. On the 1st of February this year, my lord, according to reports received, a horrible, unearthly sight was seen above St. Shamas by the sea. A fire did come from east to west, a burning staff of radial flames, as though mid-forged by heavenly smiths, a glow within the starlit frame. Its tail did warp the sky for hours, the clouds became as glimmering coals. Then arcing through the light horizon, this iron snake, this stained glass scroll, did scatter shapes upon the verdure, each a glistening rueful eye. Perhaps this was a godly gesture or conjured from some devilish mind. Your subjects beheld this on the banks, my lord, ensorcelled by its charms. Such terror tongues cannot describe, nor faith secured in your gendarmes. I cannot say just what this means, my lord, though I predict we'll understand anon. And so I pray for your good health and cheer, your seer, Michel de Nostradamus. So that's Nostradamus writing about UFO. I use some of his words and then, you know, 
inserted my own to make it rhyme. But let's get out of the rhyme area. We don't need poems to rhyme. Fuck a rhyme. It's beautiful, but we don't need that. Uh, this next one is more contemporary. It's called uh, This Rosemary, My Prison. And somebody uh, called it alien pornography to me. Can, I, can I just I think... jump in here? Can I just jump yeah. in here for a minute and say something? Sure. All right. What's up? <laughs> um, I think that is beautiful rhyming because you're, it's, it's like it was written by a secular humanist, William Blake. As soon as I heard that, I was thinking of, of if Blake replaced aliens with, uh, with the Heavenly Father. Yes, yes. He, he would have nailed that. Wow, I really like that. I never thought of it as a Blake poem, but it's definitely got his hallucinatory quality. Hallucinatory and even the, the rhyming, even yeah. the rhythms of the rhyme. Yeah. Well, thank you. Maybe I should not say fuck rhyming. Maybe yeah, I should don't say, say rhyming. Rhyming's good. We're changing the game. Rhyming's good. You know, good. this next poem ends in a rhyme, so we'll stick with rhyme mode. So this is, like I said, someone called this um, alien pornography. It's not quite pornography, but it is erotic. He is still gone, and here she must remain, bare feet crossing the cold floor again, to track the moon through frosted panes, the graying rosemary in the window box, an autumn gale as she catches her own eye in pallid glow, her sunken chin and heavy folds. How can she be so old so soon? She entertains no visitors tonight, not the one she invites, just her mother's old friends and tepid tea spilled in careless drops on yellowed gowns. The antique clock striking like a hammer, pounding the nails in the coffin of her youth, where she lies with her one aching memory of the night she was wakened, the warm pull of a compulsion, drawn to the woods of the estate through the garden, porcelain light holding to her skin like milk, and he beckoned to her. He said her name, not with her mouth, but in her brain. Said he knew her long and would know her more, and took her in his gray and slender arms and laid her like a doll among the foxgloves. Love is a kind of telepathy. Pale beneath the blaze hung the transparent foliage as he left in a flash. No one would ever believe her, she knew. He snapped her gentle heart in two, half remained in his four-fingered hand, the other on earth forever askew. So that's like a erotic alien poem. Because sometimes people will have like abduction experiences and they'll be like, yeah, I fucked an alien. It happened. And uh, that's just like part of the whole scenario. Um, I'll read a, one, I'll read one more UFO poem and then I'll read a U Icelandic translation. I just want to say that I'm grateful you didn't bring up anal probing and ass. <laughs> kudos. Kudos for that. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, that happens to people, though, too. Some people say they get that. Oh. That's a, there's a reason why that's a thing. So I don't know. But you're right. It didn't belong in that poem. That's where the soul Not, exists. <laughs> what would you say? That's where the soul exists. It's in the butt. Yeah, that's what they're looking for up there for <laughs> sure. But it doesn't fall under the um, uh, category of erotic. Um, <laughs> here's one more. This one is called uh, For Granger Taylor. This is about a guy who lived in Canada, and um, I try to hew as close to the facts of his life as possible for this poem, uh, but he's this guy who disappeared. That's really all I can tell you. Uh, so it's called Four Granger Taylor, and it happened in Canada in 1980. Your gym crack spacecraft wasn't ready for its maiden voyage, could barely hold the vessel of this gawky, shy human. From where did you get your knowledge? 
You left school to rebuild an old train, then a bulldozer, then a plane, and then some outer being slipped into your mind, a glimmering black injection of stars speaking blueprints and escapes to Mars. One bolt-soaked night, you quietly taped to your parents' door a note. Not suicide, but terse goodbye, a look for me in the skies. So how did it really end? Dynamite strewing your bones across a mountainside, the pink paint peeling your truck to blue? Or had what you claimed come true? Did they take you on their gleaming ride? And is there a difference between the two? Big on end rhymes today. So I was just in Iceland um, a couple weeks ago for a month for a uh, artist residency where I was working on these poems. But while I was there, I was spending a lot of time in this library in this village and I found a book of Icelandic poetry and I was like, I want to know what this says. So I kind of started just word for word translating it. I don't speak Icelandic. Uh, and then I eventually translated the whole book. So I'm going to read Whoa. a couple of those. Uh, there's only 16 poems, but, um, you know, I just used Google Translate and Wiktionary and ChatGPT and some locals and just kind of like clumsily made my own translations. So this one is called A Hall of Odin. Oh, and the poems are by um, Stefan Horthur Grimson, and they're from 1970, from his book called Hrithen um, As Letni, which means uh, the gates of the flatland. Cool. So, so this one's called Hall of Odin. And I think it's kind of like metal. In the illusory hollow of noble and base crosswinds, the blueberry hall sits in a poisoned dream beneath the horse-drawn mountains. Now the hall holds gladness, the stench of decay in the air, a sweet acidic hum. Wooden horses gnaw their silver words. Much is queer outside its doors, ominous weather drowning out the mountain tongue. Through the ripped sail, a shadowy figure creeps. The blueberry hall rises into the clouds. The fjord is silent. No tongues speak the answers anymore. And I'll close with this really short one called a uh, Marrow Melt Valley. Rock and sky. No cairns point the way to the next knoll. In this desolate place, in the silence of invisible walls, kindled for you a summer moon Hunting ideas as prey, the night fog lifts from your brow. Eggs glow in the sunrise. You fade into the dawn behind the morning. Thank you. Oh, that was awesome. Cheers. Well, so you so you don't know the language that much, but you still translate it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know if that's like okay. Yeah, but, I think it is. You know, like not that we should model ourselves off of Ezra Pound because Lord knows that he's he had some issues, but he did do that thing where he's like, I can translate Chinese poems. I don't speak Chinese, but fuck it. I'm I've got the heart of a poet and I'm gonna translate some Chinese poems. And they're kind of cool translations, even though they're really inaccurate. So maybe there's a tradition of poets translating things that, <laughs> from a language they don't actually speak. I, I don't know. I yeah, feel like they, 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 there is. They call them, and 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 they they um, <clears throat> what the what academia calls them is uh, not translations, but interpretations. If they don't know the language, so that's that that's how they get around it. Yeah, I want to say one thing about you. It's so interesting because you brought up uh, Notre Dame, and then you had a 
your poems about aliens, most of them are rooted in the past. There's like did a 426 year timeline <laughs> from 1554 to 1980, then you stopped off in 1970, you know? So, yes. so one of the unique things about this, of the poems you had, I think, uh, I think you read six, like three of them, three of them for sure, I picked up were, were aliens from the past. And that's an interesting concept for, I don't know, for, yeah, it's an interesting concept for, uh, instead of people, everybody seeing aliens right now, go back, go yes. back to the 20th century, go back to the 16th century, go back, you know. Yes, it goes way back to the more you like scratch at the surface of the subject, you're like, oh, there's like arguably stuff from like thousands of years ago <laughs> that seems related to it. But then you're like, am I watching too much ancient aliens on History Channel? Am I becoming a total, is my brain melting because I'm getting too into the subject? So you got to kind of like balance out your insanity. But it does go further back than you would maybe initially surmise. There's like a lot of interesting stories from the past about that stuff. Yeah, that, that'd be a nice book collection. I mean, it's a nice collection to have it. I'm almost book. there. It's almost a whole collection. I've got, uh, I just the, uh, working on it. The 1970 guy was translating Old Norse, Norse, right? No, he was he was not translating Old Norse. He was writing just originally. He's an Icelandic man. He And Icelandic as a language is really closely related to Old Norse. Um, it, it's really a unique language in the way that it's been um uh, preserved for like, like an Icelandic person today can read an Icelandic poem from like 1200 years ago or whatever, or like a wow. thousand years ago. So, English. yeah, yeah. Right. so a lot of that stuff hasn't been translated, but it's got a very strong literary culture in Iceland. So, it's interesting stuff. But, but you did mention Odon in there, right? The god, yes, yeah, he did write about that. Okay, kind that's of stuff. why I thought it was, yes. yeah, I did too. The sacred text, yeah. Yeah, he's just kind of using some of the pagan like imagery and stuff. Um, but um, I think yeah, some of that stuff is just like he, he's trying to access like the Icelandic culture. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for your poems and making this reading amazing. And all you guys. All right, James, you're up next. If you want to introduce yourself, you may, or you can just go right into it. Um, is it from? If it's from your new book, please like introduce like what your book's about and stuff. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I'm James Brubaker. Thanks for inviting me to do this, Tyler. And uh, it's a pleasure and honor to read with you all. I've enjoyed everything I've heard so far. This is fantastic. Um, I'm going to be reading a short excerpt from a new novel I've got coming out um, in just about three weeks, just a little under a month. Uh, it's called We Are Ghostlit, and Braddock Avenue Books is publishing it. Um, you can find it on their website. I think it will be up on SPD because most it, of their stuff is. Excuse me, did you say the titles We Are Ghostlit? Yes. We Are Ghost. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the book is, and it's there, there's a lot going on in it. Um, Maybe what you need to know for this excerpt is this narrator has lost a close friend. A close friend of his died. Um, and sort of under strange circumstances where he can't really get like a clear answer about what happened to this friend. And so he becomes a little sort of like fixated on um, how this friend died. Uh, and so this section is kind of speaking to that. It's written to the dead friend. Also, there is a strange reference in here um, 
there's also an entity in this novel known as the Starman, an entity made up of stardust that's sort of orbiting the story, that's kind of a part of the story that the deceased character and the narrator were both sort of aware of. So um, it might have might sound kind of strange coming in out of nowhere. Uh, so I will jump in. Um, I've concluded that there is a mystery here. Your mother told us it was a suicide. Your father said accidental overdose. And then your brother told us you were found in a cheap hotel room, that investigators seized your computer. The simple fact that there were investigators seemed important. I hope that would go somewhere, that something so formal as an official investigation might produce a trail I might follow to the truth of your demise. For years after your death, I'd type your name plus death plus London into Google, looking for police reports, articles about mysterious deaths, maybe an obituary. I found nothing. I began to concoct stories about what really happened. You were drugged at a bar and led to a hotel where you were robbed. The drugs were too much for your body and the thieves left you to die because they were afraid they'd be caught if they called for an ambulance. Or in a fit of loneliness, you arranged to meet an escort who, as it happens, wasn't really an escort, but a woman and a couple of guys, or maybe it was just the guys who pulled you into the room where you'd arranged to meet, drugged you, and robbed you. The story ends like the first. Or you were catfished. You met a woman online who seemed kind and caring. You spent months getting to know her, and when it was finally time for the two of you to meet, uh, <clears throat> or until, and then it was finally time for the two of you to meet, Maybe she was married and decided she told you that she would end her marriage. Could you just meet her at this hotel so she could know you're worth the risk? And then she ended up being a couple of guys looking for money. They took you to an ATM at gunpoint, made you withdraw your daily limit, then took you back to the hotel where they drugged you, resulting intentionally or not in your death. Or maybe they just outright killed you and took your wallet. Or you were a victim of corporate espionage, a rival web design firm, thought you were too good at your job, or maybe you knew too much about their design strategies, or you knew they were engaged in unethical behavior, or maybe they tried to poach you only to be rebuffed, and so they hired thugs to dose and murder you. Or you, tired and frustrated, staying at a hotel for some reason, perhaps because you were too drunk to get home, looked out the window up at the sky and begged the star man to come and get you. When he arrived, your fragile human brain exploded from meeting a celestial entity, or your body burned to ash from being in such close proximity to a being made of stars. Or you, in your various online dealings, uncovered an espionage plot by Russian hackers. Unfortunately, they knew that you knew about their plot before you could get to the authorities. The Russians followed you down a quiet street, pricked you with a needle, dragged you up to a hotel room. One pint too many, they said to the desk clerk, and left you to die. Or you, without any of your friends or family knowing, had become an intelligence agent for the British government, working a sting to uncover a hacking or terror or something plot, but your cover was blown when a foreign agent recognized you from a previous operation. That foreign agent murdered you and made it look like suicide. Or you are not dead. You became an intelligence agent for the British government and had to fake your death like James Bond at the beginning of You Only Live Twice so that you could go undercover. Someday I will be in China or Rome or Uzbekistan or Qatar or Argentina, and I will see the shine of your bald head across the cafe or bar or train, will hear the familiar boom of your voice. I will not acknowledge you explicitly, though, so as to not blow your cover. Maybe I'll catch your eye and nod, or maybe I'll walk by you when I'm leaving the cafe. I imagine a cafe for this scenario. 
and say, what's up? We'll share a look, a half smile, and then we'll never see each other again. But I'll feel a little bit lighter just knowing that you still exist in the world. Or the universe just murdered you, fucked you up, and killed you because you were too good to exist, because you somehow threw off the balance of all existence with your goodness. Or you were not dead. You pled with the star man to come for you, and he wasn't too much for your fragile human brain or body to handle. So he took you to live in the stars with him, leaving behind a decoy corpse that no Nobody would come looking for you. To be fair, I never saw a body, never saw ashes. That's the television rule, right? A character isn't dead until we see a body. And even then, all I saw was a photo of a memorial bench with your name on it, purchased by your family and placed at the park across the street from where you work so your former colleagues could still share their smoke breaks with you. How can I know anything if I never saw a body? Was there even a body to see? Maybe you just disappeared. No. No, of course there is a body. I know that you were dead. Anything else is absurd, is denial. I can discard any theories that involve you not dying. That narrows down the list. Maybe we can throw out the theory about you dying at the hands of Russian hackers and the theory about corporate espionage. We can ditch the Starman and universe theories as well because neither would care about an insignificant human, wouldn't even know you exist. If I'm going to come to terms with this loss, if I'm to confront this grief and move on, then I'm going to need to stay pragmatic. I'm going to need to focus on what is real, what makes sense. So there, we've discarded a few theories. That helps, right? To cut the list down to only the more plausible possibilities, the druggings and muggings, basically. I absolutely believe you could have been catfished and lured to death, just like I can imagine you might have had a few too many pints at the pub and wandered into a situation that maybe you shouldn't have. Of course, there are a couple of clear possibilities that need to be added to the list that I haven't mentioned. You started doing the kinds of drugs that can cause an overdose, the kind I'd never know you to never known you to do, uh, and you accidentally overdosed. You accidentally overdosed on prescription drugs you were taking for your mental health. You were feeling down. Maybe you went out to a pub and were too drunk to get home, so you stopped at a hotel and you took your meds and they didn't react well with the booze. Or maybe because you were drunk, you took too many pills. These are both plausible, more so than other theories. And maybe it's also plausible that one of these theories is more or less correct and you intended to kill yourself. It's possible, however unlikely. Um, I know that it's strange that I keep framing my quest for understanding through the lens of wanting to know how you died. But the truth is, I'm only interested in how, because I hope it might improve my understanding of the bigger, more important question. Why the fuck are you dead? Why did you have to die? Uh, and I'll stop there. Thanks. Hey, I'm back. Hey Tyler, lost, lost connection again. Yeah, that was that was awesome. Thank you. Isn't that? Is this? Isn't? I think it's like based off a real loss that you experienced. Yeah, it. I mean, it definitely goes to different places um, and brings in a lot of fiction. But it its sort of origin was like a sort of surprising um, death of a close friend that you know didn't get a lot of closure on or a lot of uh, real understanding on for several years. Uh, and then finally got a, a little bit of closure there. But yeah, I was very much inspired by a real loss.
Did you get closure from writing this? Um, it, I think it really did kind of help emotionally. Like it was really hard to write at times. And, um, you know, I think like at a certain point late in the, the kind of editing process, like I started to kind of like feel more kind of at peace with, with the loss. I think like the more I kind of wrote through it, I think it did help as sort of, I don't know, I think that sort of writing through pain can help some people. And I never really done that before in this kind of way. So I wasn't sure if it would be helpful or harmful for me, but I think it did end up being beneficial in the long run. I like how you use a lot of humor to address like the anger that people feel definitely with loss and the difficult thoughts that maybe you don't want to say, but you put this into the book. I like that, that you've done that. Thank you. Yeah. It was some of the, uh, this was the way you read it. It was almost like a, you read it like kind of a stream of consciousness riff. And uh, there were aspects of it that, that I thought almost sounded like you were presenting a manifesto. <laughs> Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> and I like that. I, I, I love manifesto. Thank you. All right. Before we go on, Mark, what's your favorite manifesto? My favorite manifesto is one that I published called uh, Real Realism, an art manifesto for the disenchanted. And mm -hmm. in September, New York, a it's, it's a, a totally bogus uh you know it's a fraudulent it's a it's a tongue-in-cheek but people okay. took it so serious i mean <laughs> i mean it, it's it's so it's so absurdly ridiculous but they took it so serious that this curator picked it up and put it into this into the the, the spring break festival got a got a um uh a ukrainian artist was among the five artists that were part of the real realism realism is a joke what's real realism right mm -hmm. uh, so they were all real realists. And so the weird thing was everybody was so serious about it. And spring break, which they have in L.A. and New York every year, I had to walk in there like it was a serious thing, but it was such a goof. So it was really it was really awkward for me. You know? That's hilarious. And they passed out uh, the manifesto in the in the. Uh, yeah. But 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 that's, you know, that's my recent. Uh, that's the only manifesto I've ever written. My favorite manifesto is uh, Zara's uh, Dada. <laughs> Dada manifesto. That 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 to me, I I structured I structured real realism based on on the structure of the uh, the Tristan Zara. Right. Yeah. Thank you. That was cool. All right, Spencer, you're up. If you want to introduce yourself or say something about yourself, you may. Cool. Um, it's been so wonderful listening to all of you read your work. Um, I'm Spencer. I am currently a PhD student at Buffalo. Um, and the poems that I'm going to read tonight are from my forthcoming book. Um, it drops next fall from four-way books. Um, yeah. And thank you for having me, Tyler. No problem. Um, this first one is called, uh, uh, I'm sorry. I just got to know the title. What's the title of the book? Oh, it's called, um, trans with a Z at the end instead of an S. 
Uh, cool. Um, all right. This first poem is titled Jeremy's Party at Colonial Bowling Lanes, Iowa City, 2017. Vanessa Carlton's White Houses comes on in the drafty bowling alley, which is mostly empty, save for a couple old folk and the birthday crowd. So I don't feel awkward when I start tearing up. I think maybe that's what sadness is. An old power ballad crawling back into your head as you slip three fingers into three dark holes. The power of white houses lies in how simply it describes being taken for the first time. The sex warrants punctuation, sure, but just barely. The cracked leather seat is more significant. Location never blurs or forgets, and men are always fleeting, departing and re-entering at the same time. The proof is in the bloodletting. With eyes aflame, I stand in the middle of my lane with the bumpers up. In the song, Vanessa names a man her first mistake, but when does the counting start? On my right hand, the three fingers I've buried in the ball try to balance the weight of this question. Such silly little wounds. Someone behind me says it's all in the flick of the wrist. The pins glare at the ball stalking toward their pear shapes. Seconds later, an impact explodes them in every direction. Vanessa sings, I can't resist the day, but I resist and still it breaks me. This next one is called A Funeral. When I consider the facts of my life, I inadvertently stumble upon destruction. Here are ashes in a box on the piano. Here is a teaspoon of ash in a union mug for the morning commute. From the window, birds circle a feeder, are fed, then flee. The Williams family once owned a swimming pool, but it's gone now, filled with dirt, and I've only known it as yard. Try as I might, I have no better metaphor for transgender. Oh, hole in the ground, what many faces you have. The sheer amount of cat bodies beneath you conjures scratching sounds in my childhood door. What do we call this kind of care? Dad burying Pasha in a Baskin Robbins takeout bag when I'm 11 so I wouldn't see the body. When I reflect upon the dead, tears produce my migraines. I tell close friends that even as I say myself a woman, there's a voice in me that won't belong at any funeral. So maybe the solution to grief is more cats or the internet. For instance, today I was consumed by a stranger's tweet about the loss of a parent. It startled me to know this pain about a stranger, suddenly the only thing I knew. As a precursor to mourning, I keep tabs on my family's accumulated household pain. For every cat buried in the swimming yard, there is a mark in dad's arm from cancers frozen off. Is there a word for that? One thing buried to make room for something's growth, the shape of dad's wounds, tiny craters in a yard or a pool a mausoleum of pets. This one is called, at 26, I'm getting better at distilling my rage. A fear of being judged is the 207th bone in the body. No surgery can shave it down or cut it out. My father calls me son, but with a different tone than before, as when I accomplish a goal, I'm proud of you, son like he might sense I'm about to leave and wants to lure me back without the theater of forgiveness. 
Would it kill someone to know I'm not any less of a wound now? More accurately, a slight bruise, not purple or foreboding, but there, creeping under the sleeve like a birthmark only a lover would notice. After years of cold turkey, I've turned the blinkers on, and it's amazing what I can see, but also what I couldn't on the mend, like my own hands and what hurts they made. How April fools I was, pretending I could stand without a wall or eat without a hunger. Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska was the last noise I conked out to five summers ago, and now the album plays like the kind of memory you keep when you don't want all the parts, but a handful justify the rest so you make do. A secret is that everyone wants to suffer to survive, to say they've been to hell and back and learned the lessons, but there are none in a place called hell. On the verge of dying, I felt the body fail. There was nothing I could do. I didn't push beyond that failure, and so it stuck to me, and I drag it now to the CVS, to a place called home, and to the bus, to my parents' house, to a lover's bed, and out of it, towards the bathroom and also to the kitchen for water, I made peace with my face. I look good in a desperate light, humbled, like a moth is humbled by its God, the one we made to better see the road at night. This one is called Searching. How impossible it is to language a feeling so removed from feeling. Doctor suggests gardening. I am writing this now with the shades drawn. The weather dictates the parameters of production. Some days the sun leaves and I follow it past the point of vision until the rain comes and I return home with little more than the legs that brought me. I am trying hard to be more and the task is allegedly simple, insurmountable. I speak this to the wall and the wall speaks back. Pick up your clothes. Eat your fruit salad, turn off the TV, use soap. Menial tasks which have broken weaker versions of me. Watch close. At 26, I stand beneath the sun in the garden surrounded by holes. I drive the spade into a spot of dark, then scoop out another soft wound. This one's called Lesson. Trans taught me there is no cruelty which is impossible, but what I want for whoever says I won't have it, a life. My sister is alive. My brothers are alive. My parents alive. For them, I count the yokes of each broken year in a bowl. I am still struggling to remain someone any someone can see. Spirit untethered. With history, I have a birth, chasm, belief in a romance of hurt. Sometimes when I am named inhuman, I like to imagine the outline of a child inside me. Not the want, but the wanting of the want, the ugly choice of it. My small, desperate face repeating, hello, hello. Uh, and this is the last one. It's called An Argument for Living. Today, a tiny wonder. I held the weight of me off, sliding cutlery back into their slots. Some days it is hard for me to look, to truly see my reasons, but the morning stroll around the park pond revealed a shallowness, both of water and intent. 
the geese were gone and their absence through the morning. My God, I've loved so many people, more than the gun I dropped in the field or the burst I braced for in the mouth of grasses, scattering earth from earth. At home, I scraped crusts of bread from a plate into the garbage. I thought of you, and you, and you, and you, and turned on every light. Thank you. Thank you. That was great. Does anyone have any comments or questions for Spencer? I I thought it was I, I thought that was really wonderful. There was one phrase that popped out of me that kept on sort of orbiting orbiting around me was uh, you wrote I <clears throat> I look good in a desperate light. I that's like that's that just blew me away. But the, what I really like about these poems, I get so sick of, uh, and that's why I, none of the poems today manifested it, but I get so tired of, most poems are just prose broken up in stanzas, you know? And so I, I get so frustrated, you know, I get so frustrated with that, but the poems here weren't, wasn't fake poems, and it was beautiful. And the honesty, your honesty came through. It was so powerful. I mean, powerful for me because I related to so much of what you were saying. So <clears throat> it was beautiful. I'd like to get the, when's the book coming out? Uh, it comes out next fall. So oh. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I'll probably be dead by then. Okay. That's great. <laughs> and all of those poems are from the upcoming book? Um, a couple of them are. Um, mm, okay. All of the other ones are kind of new. Um, oh, nice. Wow. Hell yeah. I just realized while you're reading, it's probably not that easy to come into like a reading with like five other like straight men and like read. Oh. It's very open <laughs> and honest. Good poetry. Not <laughs> so thank Much you for chill coming. Dudes. <laughs> all right. Well, that was the reading, everyone. Thank you all for coming and for attending. Yeah. Shout out to Jessica, our, our, audience member <laughs> yeah thank you jessica do you have any comments thank or you. Questions? <laughs> no well thank you that's awesome yeah thank you for having really enjoyed this yeah so you thanks, guys want to hang out hang out or you may leave at this time i'm out but thanks is... again Tyler.